You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Low Countries Radio, a collaboration between Republic of Amsterdam Radio and the Low Countries website, celebrating Flemish and Dutch history and culture and its impact on the world today. Welcome to the Low Countries Radio. My name is Joe Wegasani. Throughout the history of the Low Countries, People from this part of the world have been pioneers in almost every sense of the word, whether by seeking out and charting faraway lands during the European Age of Exploration, or in advancements made in science, technology, and engineering, or in their approach to social issues such as drugs or euthanasia. The inhabitants of the Low Countries have been breaking new ground, almost as enthusiastically as they've been making new ground. Despite making up over 50% of the population, the fundamental role which women have played in the development and progress of low country societies has often been neglected in historical accounts. It is well beyond the scope of this podcast to give an entire history of women and feminism in the low countries, but in this episode of the Low Countries Radio, we are going to pay homage to some of the female pioneers from our beloved Little Swamp. We will take a look at five women who ventured forth where few before them had dared or been allowed to go. They shone a light into the darkness and paved pathways for future generations of women and girls to follow them down. help me go on this exploration of female endeavor it's time to say hello to julian smith hello julian hello joe to begin today's episode we are going to take a look at one of the towering figures in the history of dutch women's rights and activism aletta jacobs born on the 9th of february 1854 in suppermere a village just outside of groningen aletta was the eighth of 11 children in an assimilated Jewish family. Her father, Abraham Jacobs, was a countryside doctor whose work would see him roaming through farmland in Groningen, visiting and tending to patients. Her mother, Anna de Jong, was responsible for keeping the household running, which, given the amount of children the couple had, was probably like having multiple full-time jobs. When Abraham Jacobs suffered from heart problems in 1878, he needed to give up work, 
meaning that the Jacobs family was forced to get by on a tight budget. Despite this, Abraham and Anna insisted that their children get the best education possible, spending what little spare money they had on their children's schooling. In her autobiographical memoirs, creatively titled Memories, Aleta Jacobs recounts that her father would often have the children practice writing by copying out the line, quote, The cultivation of knowledge for the sake of the common good is the highest of all pursuits, end quote, which gives an indication of the priority placed on education and social service in the eyes of the parents. All of the Jacobs' children, sons and daughters, bar one, would either go on to pursue further education in life, in various disciplines such as architecture, pharmacy, medicine, or teaching, or would go to join the military. As a child, Aleta Jacobs joined her father as he made his rounds through the Groningen countryside. At the age of six, she declared that she wanted to follow in his footsteps and become a doctor. But as a girl growing up in a rural area in the 19th century in the Netherlands, the only opportunity she had for further education when she finished school at 13 was to go to a nearby ladies' school where she learned about things like manners and etiquette. She called it, quote, completely idiotic, end quote, and left after two weeks. A lucky break came for her, however, when her father introduced her to the Groningen medical inspector, a Jewish man by the name of Levi Ali Cohen. In 1869, Cohen advised her to prepare for the exam to become a pharmacist's assistant, which another girl had recently been permitted to do for the first time ever. A year later, Jacobs passed that exam. But her dream was to be a doctor, not a pharmacist. Jacobs was able to persuade the headmaster of the local high school for boys to allow her to join the classes necessary to prepare for the university medicine entrance exams. In so doing, Aleta Jacobs became the first girl to attend high school in the Netherlands. She was still in her teens, yet already the trailblazing had begun. During the Christmas holidays in 1870, Jacobs found out that a male student had been given an exemption from the university entrance exams because he had passed the pharmacy exams. Emboldened by this, she wondered why the same couldn't be the case for her. In March 1871, the 17-year-old Aleta Jacobs wrote a letter to the Dutch Minister of the Interior, Johann Rudolf Torbecker, explaining that she had already passed the pharmacy exams and, quote, The undersigned politely takes the liberty of applying to Your Excellency with the request that it graciously please Your Excellency to grant her dispensation from the said entrance examination and the literary part of her study and, if necessary, to grant permission to observe the academic classes in Groningen, end quote. That's a lot more eloquent than anything I ever wrote at 17. Torbecker granted the exemption, allowing Jacobs to attend the University of Groningen for a one-year probationary period. When Jacobs learned near the end of that year that the aging Torbecker was gravely ill, she pushed for her exams to be taken as soon as possible, and, upon passing them, wrote to him, asking to be allowed to continue on studying after the probationary period. One of the final official acts that Torbecker, who was a giant figure in Dutch political history, made before passing away on the 4th of June 1872, was granting Aleta Jacobs permanent permission to attend the university. 
This made her the first officially enrolled female student at a Dutch university. Throughout her studies, Jacobs had formative experiences which would go on to shape the path towards her later career and activism. While doing her practical lessons with patients, she witnessed firsthand the struggles that working-class families faced when women, the homemakers, fell ill due to a lack of social support programs. At the hospital, she became close with a prostitute who was terminally ill with syphilis, spending time with her and learning about her life. And also, she witnessed government health inspections of prostitutes, which she found demeaning and useless. Aleta Jacobs was becoming armed with a sense of social justice which would characterize her later life. She also suffered from bouts of severe illness throughout her student days. But finally, on the 8th of March, 1879, Jacobs graduated with a doctoral degree from the University of Groningen, successfully defending her thesis, which had the title On the Localization of Physiological and Pathological Symptoms in the Cerebrum. It shouldn't surprise you to hear that this also made Aleta Jacobs the first woman to earn a PhD in the Netherlands. After finishing her studies, Jacobs made a trip to London so she could visit different women's hospitals there. She was introduced to various radicals and freethinkers, such as Charles Bradlaugh, an advocate for birth control. Importantly, she fell into a circle of women that included people like Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, Britain's first female physician, and her sister, Millicent Fawcett, who would go on to become one of the leading suffragettes fighting for women's right to vote. Throughout her life up until then, Jacobs had already been struggling individually for her right to equally participate in the society around her. But it was in London where she really saw firsthand the type of organisation and rhetoric which would be needed to help spread these changes into the wider society of the Netherlands. She returned to the Netherlands a few months later to go to a medical conference in Amsterdam. Her presence at this conference was reported in the local press. A female doctor? In the Netherlands? Shock! Horror! But this attention presented her with the perfect opportunity to really begin the work she had spent her 25 years of life preparing for, and she opened a doctor's practice on the Herengracht in Amsterdam in late 1879. Jacob spent the next 14 years in Amsterdam working as a general practitioner, receiving patients in her office, but also making house calls. Even just by traipsing through the inner city of Amsterdam to go see her patients, Jacobs was breaking social taboos. It was expected that only prostitutes would be on the Kalvestraat, one of the main streets in the centre of Amsterdam, between 12pm and 4pm. But Jacobs would walk through there anyway. Why should parts of the city be off-limits to women just because of such social conventions? During these years, she rubbed shoulders with the elite women and men in Amsterdam's society but she also opened a free clinic for poor working-class women in Amsterdam's Jordaan neighbourhood, which was open two mornings a week. Appalled by the overcrowded, squalid conditions she witnessed, she became convinced that the best solution for many of the social problems facing the city was for women to have the right to choose when to become pregnant. So in 1882, Jacobs introduced birth control in the form of the diaphragm to the Netherlands, which was a move so wildly controversial at the time that it made her the target of intense criticism 
from all corners, including her colleagues in medicine. It was around this same time that Aleta Jacobs threw herself into the political fight which would define her later life, the struggle for women's suffrage. Jacobs realised that there was no law in the Netherlands which explicitly stopped women from voting. As a tax-paying citizen, she had an income from her medical work, she met the criteria necessary to vote. So, having learned from past experience that sometimes you just need to write a letter to the government to get what you want, she wrote to the Amsterdam City Council asking to be registered to vote. The council refused, saying that the, quote, spirit of our constitution does not extend suffrage to women, end quote. You can imagine what Jacobs thought about the spirit of the constitution. She appealed up to the Supreme Court, but lost the case. Four years later, the constitution of the Netherlands was changed to state that only male residents could vote. In 1894, the Association for Women's Suffrage was founded in the Netherlands, which would organise protests and publish material in support of women's right to vote. Jacobs became its president in 1903, after which she stopped working in medicine and focused her efforts solely on women's suffrage. This activism helped her make all sorts of connections with women across the world. In 1911 and 12, she made a world trip with Carrie Chapman Catt, the president of the International Woman Suffrage Alliance, which took them to South Africa, the Middle East, India, Ceylon, the Dutch East Indies, Burma, the Philippines, China and Japan to meet women in those countries and campaign for women's suffrage. When the First World War broke out in Europe, Jacobs became a peace activist, using the connections she had cultivated throughout her life to organise an international women's congress in The Hague in April 1915. The aim of this conference was for women from around the world to meet and discuss how to end the war. Over a thousand women from 12 countries in Europe and North America attended. After the congress ended, she then travelled around Europe meeting Prime Ministers and Foreign Ministers in the Netherlands, England, Germany, Austria-Hungary, Switzerland, Italy, the Vatican, where she met the Pope, France and Belgium, urging them to adopt resolutions the Women's Conference had drawn up to bring about peace. In August 1915, she even went to America, where she met with the US President Woodrow Wilson, who, though he was uninterested in getting involved in these plans, found her, quote, so interesting a woman, end quote. It is simply remarkable to see how through sheer will, hard work and determination, Aleta Jacobs had transformed her life. She had gone from being a young girl not allowed to go to high school in Groningen to a 60-year-old woman meeting with the President of the United States discussing world peace. Although her peace plan did not come to fruition, Jacobs did have success in her fight for women's suffrage in the Netherlands. The first breakthrough came in 1917, when women were granted the right to stand for election. In the following parliamentary elections in 1918, Jacobs ran for parliament as part of a political party called the Free Thinking Democratic League. She personally received more votes than any other woman running in the election, but due to the voting system in the Netherlands, she didn't get enough to enter Parliament. 
But another woman by the name of Susa Hrunevech, who was a member of the Social Democrats, did become the first female representative in the Dutch parliament in those elections. In July 1919, a bill was passed by the Dutch parliament which scrapped the earlier changes to the constitution and gave women and men an equal right to vote. It was signed into law by Queen Wilhelmina on September 18 of that year. A huge party was thrown at the Concertgebouw in Amsterdam to celebrate the crucial role Aleta Jacobs had played in getting this law passed. Her mission complete, she soon resigned as president of the Association for Women's Suffrage and spent her last years giving speeches and keeping in touch with the contacts she had made across the world. Aleta Jacobs died on the 10th of August 1929 in Barn at the age of 75. As the first woman in a Dutch high school, the first to officially attend university, the first to earn a PhD, the first doctor, the first to introduce birth control, and being the president of the Association for Women's Suffrage for 16 years, only retiring when women's suffrage was finally achieved, Jacobs was, truly, a pioneer in so many senses of the word. A memorial plaque featuring her portrait sits today on the wall of the house in which she lived in Amsterdam. It reads, quote, Future generations owe her a great deal of gratitude, end quote. I would say that that is understating it. One of the most important women to pick up the baton after Aleta Jacobs in the fight for women's rights was Corrie ten de Loo. Born in Sumatra in 1897 in the Dutch East Indies, ten de Loo's family moved to the Netherlands when she was three. She was schooled in Amersfoort and Leiden and became a qualified English teacher and translator by 21. In 1919, the year universal suffrage in the Netherlands was achieved, Corrie began to study law at Utrecht University. She was in the generation of women who lived between what would later be known as the first and second waves of feminism. Her elder peers of the first wave, such as Aleta Jacobs, had achieved the goal they had been fighting for, the right to vote. Many thought that that was the end of the women's movement, but despite now being able to participate in electoral politics equally to men, the fight was not finished. There were still so many other ways in which women were discriminated against in society. It was up to women of Tenderloe's generation to keep pushing the pursuit for women's rights more deeply into public view. After graduating, Tenderloe worked as a lawyer in Amsterdam. In the 1930s, she became politically active when she joined the same political party which Aleta Jacobs had been a member of, the Free Thinking Democratic League. Tendelo was elected to the Amsterdam City Council in 1938 and rose to prominence when she led a protest action against a proposed law by the Minister for Social Affairs, a Catholic politician named Karl Rommer. The law would have banned married women from the labour market completely. Roma argued at the time that, quote, the married woman, by the mere fact that she is a married woman, has her life task in her family, which should be protected as much as possible against the performance of professional activities by married women, end quote. In April 1938, 
Tendelo chaired an open meeting of the Committee for the Defense of Women's Freedom at the Krasnopolsky Hotel in Amsterdam. It was attended by hundreds of women from a wide range of professions who listened to a panel of experts discuss why married women work and whether working women were neglecting their family duties. After the meeting, an open letter was telegrammed to Roma asking him to withdraw the law, saying, quote, It has been found that the married working woman, as a rule, fulfills her family duties in an excellent manner, so that the premise of the said bill, as if she were to evade her family responsibilities, is not in accordance with reality. End quote. The bill was withdrawn from reality. Other discriminatory laws still existed, however, such as one from 1924, which banned married women from working in the civil service. After the Second World War, Tendelow became a representative on the emergency national government, which was charged with rebuilding the country. Over the next 10 years, she would fight constantly for women's rights in labour and the workforce, including in the then-Dutch colonies Suriname and Curaçao, for which she was instrumental in having the word male taken off new charters that were being written for them. In 1952, Tendelow was diagnosed with breast cancer and had to take time off work to be able to deal with her illness. After returning from medical leave, she carried on the fight for women's rights in the workplace. In September 1955, she brought one of her most contentious issues before the Dutch Parliament when she submitted a motion that would end the ban on married women working in the civil service. Days of debate ensued around this, after which the so-called Motsi Tendelo or Tendelo motion passed on the 22nd of September 1955 by the barest of margins in a vote of 46 to 44. Every woman in the Tveda Kammer voted for the Motsi Tendelo. Because of her and her allies, married women could now also be government bureaucrats. Yay! This motion was part of a broader fight, though, which Tendelo would now take up in earnest. This was the legal, or more specifically, the lack of legal rights of married women in general. Modern perspectives on marriage not only differ vastly around the world, but they differ hugely in comparison with those of the past. In Western Europe, from around the 8th century up until, say, around the turn of the 18th into 19th centuries, the predominant culture across Europe, not just in marriage, was one of hierarchical servitude. Everybody was the servant to somebody else, in some way. Localized variations and exceptions that prove the rule, notwithstanding, the legality of marriage up until the 20th century in the Low Countries was, like elsewhere, one of female subservience to a man. In the 17th century, for example, married women were legally under the guardianship of their husbands. Unmarried women above 20, on the other hand, could legally administer their own affairs. Although there was a great social stigma attached to being an unmarried woman, some women definitely saw it as a preferable way of living than the very restrictive alternative. For example, here's what Flemish poet Anna Baines, writing in the 15th century, had to say about marriage. Quote, 
How good to be a woman, how much better to be a man. Maidens and wenches, remember the lesson you're about to hear. Don't hurtle yourself into marriage far too soon. The saying goes, where is your spouse, where's your honour? But one who earns her board and clothes shouldn't scurry to suffer a man's rot. Though wedlock I do not decry, unyoked is best, happy the woman without a man. Breach, sister. The legal subordination of married women to their husbands was enshrined in Dutch law in the 1838 Burgerlijk Wetboek, or Civil Code, which had been largely adopted from the Napoleonic Code. As a part of this civil code, men were named as being the head of the marital union. Married women were classified as hundlings on bequam, or legally incapacitated. This was the same classification as minors and people with mental disabilities. A husband had the right to administer properties owned by his wife, and married women could not legally sign contracts or take legal actions without the consent of their husbands, unless this had been otherwise stipulated in prenuptial agreements. This seems strange for a country that, by the 1950s, had already held a married female monarch in extremely high esteem for some decades not to mention an ever-growing population of educated, employed, married women who had every reason to be more than slightly irked. Corrie Tendelow teamed up with other influential political advocates, including newly appointed Minister of Justice Julius Christian van Oven. And in February 1956, new legislation was put forward that would see married women's self-competency to act recognised. Groups that were against it lobbied to get an amendment stuck in which kept the the man is the head of the marriage part of the law, meaning the debate leading up to the vote was largely focused on this amendment which Tenderlow reasonably argued virulently against, claiming, quote, the gentlemen are all scared, end quote. She went on to say, quote, the inspiring idea is that there will be no more a lord and a slave, a boss and an underling. What do they want to do with the amendment now? That is precisely the intention to bring back that provision, against which there has always been the greatest resistance from the first moment that women in the Netherlands began to speak out. It is precisely this determination that caused strife and friction in marital relations because the man began to rely on a certain power. End quote. Despite her strong words, after a vote, this amendment was included and would not be scrapped until 1970. Nonetheless, when the legislation was finally passed by the House in May 1956, it was a significant day for women's rights. Along with Christian van Oven, Corrie Tendelo was the driving force in this monumental legislative change. In response to the changing of marital law, she said, quote, the husband no longer is automatically right about everything, and the wife's subordination is a thing of the past. End quote. As it was, in order to attend the debates around the marital rights legislation, Corrie had postponed an operation on the breast cancer which she had also continued to fight. Even though she would be admitted to hospital for the operation the very day after the new law's passing, she tragically succumbed to the disease on October 18, 1956, three months before the law came into effect. 
in an obituary, her work for married women's rights was called her crowning achievement. It added, quote, as a sharp-spirited legal expert, captivating in her often fierce speeches, but always humane and dignified, she has always stood up for the interests of women, end quote. Corrie Tendelot certainly did live up to her life motto, Frappe, frappe toujours, meaning something along the lines of hit and keep hitting. We'll be back after this break. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is now time to turn our attention to Belgium to take a look at some of the pioneering women who began the struggle for women's rights in that country. For a long time, historians focused on the religious and social differences between Belgium and the Netherlands as grounds for defining Belgian feminism. They would point to the supposed social pillars, liberal bourgeoisie, Catholic, socialist, etc., and categorise the movement as such. More recent work, though, has identified an entanglement of many different groups and individuals from early on in the movement around the mid-19th century. Different women and men from all kinds of backgrounds, variously either pushing, defending, allying with one another on, or fragmenting over many different issues, ranging from suffrage to alcohol regulation to birth control. One of the most important early figures in Belgian feminism was a woman named Isabel Gatti de Gamond. Her father was an Italian artist named Giovanni Gatti, and her mother a Belgian feminist writer by the name of Zoe de Gamond. Zoe de Gamond's family was in the lower nobility in Belgium, and as a child she had spent much time at salons which were hosted by her mother, where she was introduced to politics and philosophy and would take part in the discussions. Zoe and Giovanni became followers of the work of Charles Fourier, an extremely influential French utopian socialist philosopher, who, among other things, coined the phrase feminism. The couple moved from Brussels to Paris, where Zoe found success with a book she wrote commenting on Fourier's philosophy. It was there in Paris on the 28th of July, 1839, that Isabelle Gatti de Gamond was born. She grew up in an environment swirling with revolutionary idealism and intellectualism. Following the ideals of Fourier, in 1842, Zoe and Giovanni attempted to set up a utopian socialist commune based on the principles of free inquiry, equality, freedom and solidarity in CITO, 
which was an 18th century abbey just outside of Dijon. Putting the theoretical ideas of Fourier into practice turned out to be a complete financial disaster. It pretty much sent the couple broke and forced them to give up and return to Brussels when Isabel was five. In Brussels, Zoe de Gamond turned her attention to the business of education for girls, becoming Inspector General of Nursery Schools, Primary Schools for Girls, and establishments intended to train teachers for the Belgian state. When Zoe de Gamond died in 1854, Isabel was forced to find work to help support her younger sisters and her sick father. She found a job working as a governess for an aristocratic family in Poland. The family she was working for quickly realised that this 15-year-old girl who had moved in with them was much too intelligent to be kept doing menial chores, so they gave her access to their library. As such, during this time in Poland, Isabel Gatti de Gamond was able to teach herself things like Latin and ancient Greek. When she returned to Brussels in 1861, which was around the same time that Aleta Jacobs was just turning five, Gatti de Gamond was set on a course of developing the work which her mother had begun and creating a proper female education system in Belgium. Within just a few short years, she launched the Cours l'Education pour jeunes filles, which is my terrible French for Girls' Education Course, which was funded and supported by the city of Brussels. Gatti de Gamond was driven by two seemingly contradictory aims, which, in hindsight, reflect the step-by-step nature that the pursuit of women's rights at the time had to take on. On the one hand, she sought to better equip women to be the, quote, angel protectresses of the home, end quote, educating them so they could be informed enough to better serve their husbands and share the concerns and burdens of their intellect. On the other hand, Gatti de Gamond wrote numerous texts intellectualizing on women's independence. In the words of Kart Vils, who's a professor of European cultural history at KU Lofen, quote, Gatti de Gamond depicted better education as a guarantee for independence and as a means to attain equality between man and woman. Her texts thus appear to be highly ambiguous as far as her opinion on the relationship between men and women and the position of women in society is concerned. The same applies to the question as to what independence and equality exactly meant for this 23-year-old single woman, who would soon be financially independent by directing her own school, but who described the most important mission of a woman as becoming a self-effacing wife, mother and educator. This last function following naturally from the two first. End quote. Initially, Gatti de Gamond focused on the first of her two main aims for women's education, that educating women would allow them to restore or maintain order in the household. As the years went on though, she became more and more driven towards the second, empowering and emancipating women in the workforce and educating them with skills for employment. The study of science and history became key components of her educational philosophy. In her younger adult years, she comfortably maintained a belief in God as well as a deep appreciation and passion for science, which she felt was one of the chief vehicles by which she felt the love of God could be appreciated. One of her central tenets was that the history of the world was one of human progress. 
Both science and women's rights were a part of that journey, which was all a celebration of God's creation. To her fellow women, she argued that they armed themselves with an understanding and knowledge of science as a means of advancing female rights and equality. She wrote, quote, Friends, let's not curse progress. It is the raison d'etre of the world, of humanity, of the individual. The world marches on, and we will only move forward if we walk with it, end quote. Inwardly, Gatti de Gamond felt that if she could advance women's understanding of how the world worked, they could move beyond crippling superstitions and beliefs about nature. By this, she did not mean religion, but more rituals and beliefs about how things worked. As for history, this was the field where Gatti de Gamond believed that women could have a greater understanding of, in her words, the, quote, immaterial part of their being, end quote. History was a vehicle for teaching ethics to young girls, and as such, had to be taught in a way that was more relatable. To quote Cartwills once more, her philosophy around this was, quote, If history were to function as an ethical model, the attention of the history teacher should not be on the abstract history of nations, but on the life and moral development of individuals, their relationship to their family, their country, humanity, and God. And if history was to attract the interest of women, it should not consist of a summary of military and political events from which women were in any case excluded, but offer instead a female education taught by women and appealing through its stress on morality to reason and emotion, end quote. This fell into a larger debate that was being had across the Low Countries and beyond about female historiography, how females were and should be represented in the conveying of history. To compare ideals, in the Netherlands, contemporary Dutch feminist Clara Wichmann was arguing that the study of history had been incomplete because it had lacked the orientation that natural feminine qualities like intuition and empathy would bring to it. Another from north of the border, historian Joanna Naber, was highlighting women in her work who were outwardly assertive, even aggressive, and whose lives were contradictory to the traditional female-male passive-aggressive dichotomy that was so prevalent and ingrained in the cultural psyche. Gatti de Gamond did not go so far. In some of her history writings, like a History of Belgium textbook, she wrote, she gives women much the same backseat position as was the norm. Only one of her history works is an exception with a strong female protagonist. What was radical, though, about Gatti de Gamond's educational system was that it had no religious or church basis. The Liberal Town Council of Brussels was her patron, and in this they supported her. The powerful Catholic media, on the other hand, were outraged. In a nice little piece of using the system against itself, those who stood by the irreligiosity of the girls' education course defended it by citing that an 1850 law that allowed clergy to offer religious classes only applied to boys. Her passion for science and rational thought increased. She wrote, quote, It is science, this wise mother who, far to weaken us, strengthens us, inspires us with courage and humanity, because it sheds light around all, while credulity only begets darkness, end quote. Being the autodidact that she was, she was an avid reader and writer, contributing to the educational, scientific and ethical discourse swirling around the place. She brought the same kind of vigour and boldness to the classroom, 
often arranging courses in things like physics and chemistry more in line with her own reading than with the establishment wisdom at the time. In 1899, she retired from education and moved into politics. She became heavily involved with the Belgian Socialist Party and by 1901 was the inaugural secretary of the newly founded National Federation of Socialist Women. According to a friend, she had decided to, quote, devote the rest of her life to the education of poor women, end quote. Her scientific rationalism evolved into an outright contempt for organized religion and social injustice, although she used the many high-end connections she had cultivated over the years to pursue her causes, all the while writing more and more political socialistic articles for publication. Through her attending numerous meetings and conferences and through the alliances she built, she became the first female Freemason in Belgian history. She died in 1905 at the age of 66, having firstly built and maintained an education system that would provide one of the most important platforms for the Belgian feminist movement to get a foothold, and secondly, fighting for the rights of others until her final days. Feminist movements across the world were never the responsibility or purview of just one or a few individuals. As mentioned, so many groups and peoples had different opinions and views on how women's rights should take shape and their cause or causes intersected in different ways and sometimes didn't. When Gatti de Gamond set up Corps l'Education, the makeup of her staff reflected her opinion that women were natural educators. As such, many of her teachers were women who have long since been considered part of this first generation of Belgian feminists. This included women like Emma Leclerc, who was the first woman to apply to study science at the University of Brussels in 1878, and her colleagues Marie Destray, who followed suit two years later, and Louise Poplon, who did similarly. All failed in their applications, but were breaking ground nonetheless. There are so many unheralded and even unknown stories of women who, by attempting something that went against the ingrained customs of the time, might not have succeeded, but nonetheless took another chip out of the damn wall that would, I hesitate to say, eventually break. Of those who worked at Gutty's schools, it was Louise Poplan's sister, Marie, whose plight would have received the most attention. After teaching at Gatti de Gamon's school for nearly 10 years, she set up another school for young women, together with her sister. Then, in 1883, with Marie now 37, the Brussels University opened its doors to women, so she set her sights on becoming a lawyer, of which there were zero females in Belgium. She was accepted and became Belgium's first woman to study law. After completing her doctorate of law in 1888, she only needed to be administered to the bar to be able to work fully as a lawyer. Much as Aletta Jacobs in the Netherlands needed exemption to complete her medical qualification, so too did Poplam. She wrote to the Board of Admissions to request exactly that, and she was denied, with the following reasons being given. There was a time-honoured tradition of only men being advocates. I just imagine that they say it in that manner. Married women were legally incapacitated, as we see with Corrie Tendelot's endeavours in the North, 
and this made it difficult for them to act as lawyers, disregarding the obtuse sexism of it, the fact that Pop Nun was unmarried did not come into account. The third and final reason was that women were naturally unfit for the profession, being that housekeeping and child-rearing demanded all of their attention. Disregarding the obtuse sexism of it, the fact that Poplin didn't have children did not come into account. Appeal after appeal failed, and in the end, Marie Poplin would never be allowed to sit the bar exam. In fact, it would not be until 1922 that women in Belgium would be allowed to operate as lawyers. Although Poplin had great support, most notably by prominent Belgian female rights lawyer and activist Louis Franck, she could not garner the support she needed in the upper ranks of Belgian politics and society. Remember how Aleta Jacobs wrote to Johannes Torbecker, catching him at the very end of his life and in a position to grant something that, while possibly relatively innocuous to him, opened the door for her and other Dutch women to walk through? Poplar had no such big mover and shaker to shift things for her. The case, though, did attract a heap of attention, becoming known as the Poplin Affair. François de Burger van Lierde, with his beautifully Franco-Dutch name, wrote in an analysis of the case, quote, The Poplin Affair had therefore ended in a failure, foreseeable, moreover, given the situation of inferiority of women that was admitted into morality and recognised as legitimate by the majority opinion. However, it was immediately followed by an important event, the birth of the feminist movement in Belgium, end quote. This take might not quite give enough credit to all of those who had already been working tirelessly for the advancement of women's rights prior to the Poplin affair, but certainly the issue did provide impetus. Poplin and her allies did not take her setback lying down, but thereafter went about founding the Belgian League of Women's Rights in 1892. The bulwarks of archaic conventions would take slightly longer to deconstruct in Belgium than in the northern provinces. Female suffrage would not be achieved until 1948, one of the last countries in Europe to do so. Would this have been different had Poplin had slightly more luck and support in the upper echelons of power? It is impossible to know. But the tragedy is that nobody helped her walk through that door, and we will never find out what she might have achieved had her potential not been obstructed, which is what can be said about anybody whose freedom to fulfill their promise is curtailed. We cannot even come close to mentioning all of the women who contributed and continue to contribute to the women's rights movement in the Low Countries. We have merely tried to touch upon a few of the pioneers whose stories hopefully exemplify the kind of adverse conditions, contexts and circumstances through which women had to persevere in order to achieve their goals. That being said, it would not be right if we ended this episode without having a brief glance at one of the most groundbreaking and influential people in Dutch history. Her name was Margareta Albertina Maria Klompe, or, as she was known to friends, family, and eventually to the country, Marche. Born in 1912, Klompe was admitted into the University of Utrecht in 1929 to study chemistry, although she wanted to study medicine. 
By 1932, she had bachelor and master's degrees and continued to study while teaching. She began her doctorate and studied throughout the German invasion, up until the university was closed in April 1943. The analytical, academic and research-based experience she garnered during these years would remain a constant in her later work on policy development. Another important aspect of Klompe's background was her religiosity. With a strong Catholic background, she went through a crisis of faith in her early 20s while studying science at university. After some years, she returned to the church with unshakable resolve. But her perspectives had widened out, and despite becoming more devotional to the mysticism of Catholic doctrine, she was more able to find common ground and understanding with people of different belief systems and backgrounds. Religious tolerance and the importance of specific group identity would remain fundamental tenets of her approach to governance. They were also fundamental tenets to her response to the German invasion in 1940. She joined the Female Volunteer Corps and was sent to the front line of the Dutch military resistance, where she assisted in taking care of wounded soldiers at the Battle of Hreberberg. Following the surrender, she worked as a courier in resistance groups, often connected to the Catholic Church. When her hometown of Arnhem became the focus of fighting, she aided in helping people to flee. From then until the end of the war, she was in hiding. When the war ended, Klompe immediately became a part of the civil effort to rebuild society, joining the Dutch People's Movement that sought to reform pre-war Dutch politics. In a 1946 general election, however, she was disappointed that no Catholic woman came into office. Together with others, she set up the Roman Catholic Women's Sorority and became its president. Despite this, though, Marcha Klompe did not identify as a feminist, nor did she align with feminist movements. She took it as normal that, if suited to it, a woman could do the same as a man in principle. However, she was also sensitive to the cultural and social complexities involved in the issue. She showed a preeminent and deep understanding of how globalised the world was becoming and how interlinked its vast array of social problems were. Because of her growing renown, in 1947, she became a delegate of the Dutch Embassy to the United Nations. From that point until this very day, the state of the Netherlands would be firmly tied to the mind and work of Marcha Klompe. She fought against poverty and for social inclusion, emphasising the importance of religious and individual freedom within the protection of wider social inclusion. She worked tirelessly for international peace and justice. In 1948, she became a member of parliament, and from then until 1956, worked largely as a delegate to the still pretty young United Nations General Assembly. She was a member of the Consultative Assembly of the Council of Europe and sat in the parliament of the European Coal and Steel Community, which would later be blended into the European Economic Community, a predecessor of the European Union. From 1956 until 1963, she became the first female government minister in the Netherlands, holding first the social work and then the education, arts and science portfolios. When she took it over, the Ministry of Social Work was not the most esteemed section of government to lead, and under lesser stewardship, there was every chance it could have been a mere token appointment, pushed to the background. Klompe's persistent drive emphatic passion for the issues it focused on, and tenacity ensured that by the 1960s, 
the Ministry of Social Work was taken very seriously. She used the full might of government, as well as the force of her own character, to make massive changes to the social service culture of the Netherlands, the nature of which is still around today. Arguably, her biggest achievements came in 1963, when she saw two major pieces of policy passed. One was the Old Age Homes Act, which forced aged care homes to operate to a much higher standard than they had been generally, and the General Assistance Bill, which brought social care and welfare firmly into the state's responsibility, making services accessible to everybody, whereas previously people had relied on charity. The very strong and supportive social protections that exist in the Netherlands today are a direct result of Marcha Klompe's General Assistance Bill. After this, in 1963, Marcha decided to stop as a minister. During the politically and socially tumultuous year of 1966, however, she was convinced to return to the post, if only for a temporary period. In 1967, following an election, she was put forward as a possible prime minister. Had she accepted the role, it would have made her the first female political head of a democratic European government over a decade before Margaret Thatcher did it in the UK. However, Marcha, in her typical style, took a pragmatic, analytical approach to the possibility, feeling that she was not strong enough in her understanding of finance and the field of economics. She was never doing things so she could be the first woman doing them. Rather, she did what she felt was the right thing to do, according to her very strong values, but also her understanding of the complexities of human society. She took herself out of the running for PM, but when the eventual Prime Minister emerged, she could not refuse his plea that she return as a minister once more. Her second stint in this role ended in 1971, when she hung up the governmental boots for good, thereafter dedicating herself to her faith and the church. She remained extremely active on a civil front, sitting on numerous boards and councils, and, because of her prominence, remained a beacon of values for Dutch society, values that she had long implemented in the policies she pushed through. Values like having tolerance of those with different identities, recognising the importance of localised particular communities, and the obligation of community to give assistance to those in need. Because of how she moulded the culture of the way a government should treat the people, the values of Marcha Klompe became ingrained into the post-war identity of Netherlanders as values that the entire community could stand by. For her life's work, including 23 years in government, she was awarded the extremely prestigious honorific Minister of State, being the first female since the title's inception in 1915 to be named as such. In total, as of today, there are only 45 people who have ever received the honour. Since Marcha, three other women, Dr. Elsa Borst, Sibylla Decker and Vinnie Sochtrache, have joined the array of blokes who have added their names to the list. The pursuit of women's rights and gender equality in the Low Countries has and continues to be a long and complex struggle. It is not reflective of reality to say that the achievements garnered from the mid-19th century onwards were down to just a few remarkable people. Rather, it has been the ongoing actions and decisions, both small and large, 
by all kinds of women and men from all sorts of different backgrounds who have cumulatively pushed their societies inch by inch towards inclusivity of women. With that being said, and with it being impossible to cover all the details of this movement in just one podcast episode, we still felt it worthwhile to highlight a very few of the many stories that abound from the early feminist movement. Hopefully, in their remarkable lives, we can see the reflection of not only how incredible and persevering humans can be, but also what kind of obstacles stood in the way of women during the periods that they lived, and how these women both found ways to overcome them or were forced to abide by them. They are examples of how the women of this region went about putting their imprint on it, despite the mechanics of the religious, social, legal, economic, and political systems being geared against them. Just some of the ways the ladies in the Low Countries went about shaping this remarkable swamp. Do you want to know more about Flemish and Dutch history and culture? Visit www.the-low-countries.com. This podcast is made by Republic of Amsterdam Radio.